Um, welcome back to Political-ish. Um, I have to admit, today is one of the one of the toughest shows I've had to do. Um, actually, I want to do a trigger warning first. If you are triggered by evil, or monopoly, or invasions of privacy, you might not want to watch this because there will be a lot of that shit happening. Um, but uh, I have a very special guest today. Um, it's probably the go-to person for all of the ins and outs in Silicon Valley. And uh, today we're gonna talk about, as you know from the title, we're gonna talk about Facebook and what Facebook has become and can it be fixed? How deep is that reservoir of evil that they have created? My words. Um, so I have with me Elizabeth Waskin with the Washington Post and I have seen you everywhere, uh, Elizabeth. Um, I heard you on Armstrong and Getty. Um, but I've seen you all over the news and you're on PBS a lot. You you're at the Washington post. And before that, I think you're at the New York times, you're at Bloomberg, you're at wall street journal. So you've been everywhere. I mean, did, when you got out of Columbia, did you say I'm only going to work at first class blue chip? <laughs> like how did that happen? Well, I was, um, I don't know. I, I never, I never, I would never an employee for the times, the other ones I was an employee. Oh, but okay. I did do it. I did do a column for them. Basically, I was really lucky when I got out of journalism school. I got a fellowship at the Village Voice. And so I got to stay in New York City and that turned into a full time job. And I got to essentially do what journalists rarely can do these days, which was I, I got to publish a 3000 word magazine length story once a month. Oh, my God. It was a cover story in the voice. And that was like the coolest gig all around New York. And that led to a a, a column, um, guest columnist in the Times opinion section about the gritty side of New York, and that led to other stuff. So, was it called like Townie or Around Town or something like that? Yeah, it was called Townies, and it was yeah. a column that they started about New York. And my purview, my role was to do the grit, the gritty side of New York. So, I like ugly, that, man. I've been covering ugly things for a real long time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but what I'm most interested with you is that it said like your first three years out of Colombia, you were in Brazil. And I was like, I have to talk about that because you were freelancing in Brazil, but like, um, what what were the issues? Because I have a very, and we probably want to do a show on this. I have a very big fascination with the favelas, uh -huh. the favela life, the favela culture, um, how people exist in these cities within cities. Um, so they don't even exist on the map still to this day. If you to this day, the, the streets yeah. aren't laid out right on a map. Well, just like, yeah, I mean, it's like literally one sixth of the population is not accounted for on the map. You <laughs> it's know, crazy. Because, yeah, it's, you're talking about mil a million, over a million people. God, that is so yeah. fascinating. Well, what yeah. did you cover in Brazil? So I um, was a freelancer with the Associated Press. And so, you know, that was like a wire service. So we did everything. Mm -hmm. But the coolest things I got to do were um, I did get to go to the favelas a lot. I got to write about. Um, you know, Brazil was having its kind of pre-Obama mo moment, like they elected a leftist labor leader named Lula, Lula, uh, much later and, you know, who was later indicted and right. got into all these corruption scandals. But at the time, it was that euphoria of hope and change after years of the conservative party. And so he was doing all this stuff, like he was giving the landless people land. He was basically giving the poor people land. And he, he created a program that was derided by Brazil's upper classes, like welfare but it, like in a bad way, like think like 1980s, 1990s, how 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 American how welfare was attacked on kind of racial lines and class lines, and it was it was the same in Brazil. He basically would give people who earned almost nothing basically a dollar a day, so it was basically nothing. But it trans it was like a basic income that effectively 
um, years later has been shown to have transformed the fortunes of the, the lowest classes in Brazil. It was very little money, but it was attacked publicly as being like a handout and it's going to make people lazy and all those kind of tired arguments that actually didn't bear out with the facts. Um, and then I got to go to the Amazon. That was really cool. Oh my that. God. That's yeah, amazing. I got, yeah, it was like, I got to travel all over the country. The Amazon region is just amazing. I think everyone should have a chance to go there. Truly the most amazing place I've ever been to to this moment. Did you have any interactions with some of the, um, some of the indigenous, indigenous folks in the, to the Amazon? Or did they keep you away? Not, I never went to like a pure indigenous area tribe, though, as you know, a lot of the people there are descended from indigenous people. They're, they're mixed. Um, but yeah, I never, I never got, I never went to like, um, like a tribal area. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's interesting, man. That's pretty fascinating. I'd like to do a show on that. Actually. I'd like to do a show. Oh my God. I can never remember the name of the place, but there is a place where the, where the uh, Pan American highway stops and then you can't get through there because of the cartels and because of the vegetation and the geography, um, and the wild animals. Uh, but I can never remember the name of that place, but, um, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think so. It's vague. It's been a long time, but I know there's, I know there's, um, there's talk of expanding that highway now. Oh, um, really? To cut through there? Yeah. And there's also huh. some really great, I'll have to send you, there's some great Brazilian films actually that are like one of the most famous Brazilian films ever. It's just a story of people on that highway where they uh, took real, it's one of those films where it's a fictional film, but they roped in real people who were playing themselves in the mix of a fictional film. It was like half documentary, half fiction. And it's like, it's like about that highway that built Brazil and the oh, logging. Yeah. There's still so much logging there. Like I used to take in the Amazon, you take boats instead of, instead of cars in a lot of places. So you take these commuter boats and you have to spend the night on the boat. So you have to sling up your hammock. And I remember one night I slung up my hammock. The only place in the boat was right next to the dance floor. Cause it's Brazil. So there's a dance floor <laughs> everywhere, even on a commuter boat. And I'm swinging my hammock next to the dance floor mm -hmm. and I'm surrounded by loggers. Like those were the other people who were the commuters besides mm -hmm. me as a traveler <laughs> in Dallas. <laughs> That's a pretty amazing story. I, I'd love to talk more about that, but we're going to switch from the jungles of the Amazon to the jungles of Silicon Valley. And I don't know which is more dangerous. I think you probably would say Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> I would say so too, because they affect so many more people. Uh, so so again, I, I have issued my trigger warning, um, you know, and I just have to say this, Elizabeth, of, of all of the uh, podcasts that I have done, this to me is the hardest for me to do. And it's not because of the, uh, how should I put this? If you had asked me to do a podcast on the family life of a little white rat, I would say, shit, yeah, I got that, right? <laughs> I'd go read a couple articles on little on the family lives of white rats. I would watch a documentary. I'd go to YouTube piece of cake. If you want me to talk about the problems and the evils inherent with Facebook and other social media, it is so prodigious. It's like, where do you start? It's like putting me at a donut buffet and going, okay, go. Like, you know, where do you start? So, you know, you've been there, I think, since almost the beginning or how long have you been doing the Silicon Valley beat? Um, it'll be nine years. So not the very beginning, but an early enough that it was before all the scandals or let's say before the mega scandals and when the comp it was a totally different company then so did you know mark zuckerberg then when was the first time you inter interviewed mark zuckerberg so he never actually was open to an interview with me until um i think the first time i interviewed him um well the only time i've interviewed him 
was, um, I think in 2018, I want to say, and, and that was the first time I actually had to sit down with him and, um, he actually wrote me a nice note afterwards. And yeah, I, yeah it was interesting to, um, you know, prior to that, um, we thought maybe he, our coverage was too hard and maybe that's why he wasn't sitting, sitting down with us. Zuckerberg seems to me like the kind of guy who would make you interview his shadow. Like he would stand around a corner and his shadow would like, you know, be on the sidewalk and you would have to ask questions of his shadow and he would yell them around the corner, but he actually allowed you to meet with him face to face. Yep. In his office, um, on the Facebook campus. And, um, yeah, he was, uh, he was, um, human. He was, he was human and he's, you know, he's gotten the criticism for being super robotic over mm -hmm. the years. Um, but he's also had a lot of training, media training and training with people. So he wasn't, he didn't actually come across as robotic to me. He comes across as, you know, people also say he's very thoughtful. Like he holds long pauses. I think Roger McNamee wrote in his book that, you know, former investor who's now become a critic of the company, but he wrote in his book that when he first decided to early invest in Facebook and he met this young Mark Zuckerberg who was 19 at the time or, so you know just to just in college still or dropped out of college and um he he remembers he asked Zuckerberg a question and he held before Zuckerberg answered he paused for almost five minutes according to the anecdote now just imagine being in a meeting with someone and they paused that long so he really he didn't do that with me but he really takes his time and thinks through things in a way that like there's all this other stuff going on in his head um than what he says so he's you know is a character wow. right yeah i mean i think the five minute pause i guess it depends on where their eyes are right like if they're, <laughs> yeah. if they're still looking at you the whole time that would be a little uncomfortable uh if his eyes are wandering i might feel a little more comfortable um but well, I, think, I think what it says is that even though he does want to be liked and that's both the ethos of the company like you know the like button but all which they you know an idea they took from someone else some of the many ideas they've taken from the innovators in silicon valley um, in a pretty aggressive way. I've written about that. Um, but even though he wants to be liked, he's also someone who in some ways I think doesn't care as much about being liked and especially one-to-one. -one. And that's because if you were going to talk to me and you were going to hold a five minute pause, you would, wanna, you would know like, is she, is she okay? Like you would try to give me some cue. So that yeah, right, right. Like I'm still thinking, hold on one minute. Okay. Right. But he doesn't, he didn't, according to that account, he didn't, he didn't care to give the cue. He was much more focused on what he was thinking than the person response and person's response. And people say, well, that, you know, can allow, has allowed him to make decisions that, you know, the critics would say, well, he doesn't care about people. And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have that empathetic touch. Um, uh, there you go. Right. Make the cold, hard decisions, you know, for the, for the, that, that where it's ensuring Facebook's growth at all costs. So I'm not on Facebook and I'm not on Twitter. Um, I thought Facebook quit about Facebook about seven years ago. Um, I just felt it served no purpose for me. I didn't quit because I thought they were evil and I didn't like what they were doing, or I just quit because I thought it was um, bad. Like it served no purpose for me. Um, people- well, that's different. Is it bad or no purpose? Cause those are different. Um, it was a bad use of my time Okay. Uh, when I was on it. And it served no purpose for me. So anytime I was on it, it just, it, what am I doing? Why am I wasting my time on this? So um, when you realize and look at your friends and you're like, well, I don't even know these people. Like, they're not my friends. 
Um, what am I, what am I doing? Why am I getting this dopamine hit? So, um, so I got off of that and that I appreciate you uh, pointing out that, that difference. And then, um, and I never was on Twitter. I tried to, I've tried Twitter three times, but the fire hose effect is just too much. It is just too much. It's too much information. Uh, I think it's too much stimulation coming at you. Maybe there's a way that you can, um, you can use it where it doesn't have that effect, but it was just too much information for me in a way that I think has to be unhealthy for people who are on it too much. What do you, what is your take on the whole Twitter and the feed? Um, well, it reminds me like, okay, so my dad is a guy, you know, my dad's 70, but he's a guy who he's a channel flipper. Like whenever he watches mm -hmm. TV, he doesn't seem to watch a full show. He just flips channels, flips channels. So I thought, wow, if my dad were younger, he would be a huge Twitter user because he's a, it's like for the channel flippers of our society. Like, yeah. no, let me, let me step back and say, you have to have the kind of attention span to use right. Twitter. You have to not be bothered by getting information and blips and blacks. And if you're, you know, a kind of deeper processor, then the medium might doesn't like it doesn't speak to me. Like I use Twitter all the time and I can get absorbed just as much as the next person. But I also had that feeling of like, I want to process ideas much more deeply than in this medium. What's really interesting though is, you know, so you said you haven't used Facebook in years mm -hmm. and Twitter is this way. So both the companies in the last, I think, two, three years have made really big shifts in the design of their platforms in response to this criticism. In Facebook's case, in 2018, they basically shifted so that the, they shifted the algorithm so that you would hear a lot more, you would see a lot more in your newsfeed from friends and families. Like they've really, they claim to have really changed the newsfeed so that it's less random people's political views and rants, like people you'd see, especially around election time and much more um, your closer circle. Now you could ask, okay, well, just step back and say, Facebook has decides it knows your closer circle. You know, you never told them that, um, or you, you might not have told them that. You might've clicked that someone was your mother or father, but they're discerning who's in your inner circle by who you interacted with the most. And they're saying, okay, we'll show people more of who they interact the most. So to give, so, so like to respond to people like you, who felt like the service was becoming a waste of their time because there were so many anonymous, it wasn't meaningful, it was all these right. anonymous people. Right. And with Twitter, what Twitter has done is Twitter has launched in the same year as Facebook made this friends and family changes, Twitter started to create this initiative called Healthy Conversations. And I interviewed Jack Dorsey about it at the time, that's the Twitter CEO. Mm -hmm. And Jack Dorsey is a really interesting interview, also a very deep thinker like Zuckerberg. and. Um, even more, he's very philosophical. And he told me, I remember at the time, he said, I'm open to rethinking all of how Twitter works. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I want to rethink the incentives on Twitter. You know, why should, you know, we have this button where you can heart something, you can retweet something. And he's like, it gives people, you know, he's like fundamentally the wrong impulses. Like all you want to do is be liked, all that stuff being liked. He said, I'm rethinking that. At some point, they even disabled temporarily last year, they disabled the retweet button during the election. Um, you couldn't automatically retweet. And they did that in the name of healthy conversations. They said, you know, we know that a lot of people are blindly retweeting con content and maybe they want to, but we think the harms, the potential harms of this ability to just automatically retweet is actually are actually greater than the benefits. So they've made some very interesting calls around, you know, this this I would I would call this kind of late stage algorithmic changes 
that we've seen in the last two years around basically in response to some of the criticisms of social media. Well, so I guess that you brought up the you brought up the algorithm because um, I think that's one of the things that I feel has that has been introduced. But did fake? Because I know I think we both know, and you you mentioned it a minute ago that Mark Zuckerberg is famous for taking stuff and taking credit for it, or finding things and purchasing them, right, and putting them into his into his company. Um, which I also hate because I am on Instagram and it kills me that I have to use a Facebook product. Um, right, so, you'll never leave Facebook's world and Facebook knows that. It doesn't matter. What's you know, that? I said, you're not going to leave Facebook's world and Facebook yeah. knows that. You know, they know that's, they know that maybe you're no longer using Facebook, but you're still in your, hell no, you're not going to delete Instagram. <laughs> so he knows. Yeah. The duck knows. So the algorithm. So who who brought this up? Was this was this developed in Silicon Valley by Facebook, or did other folks bring it up? Like, where did this whole social media algorithm where did it develop out of? That's a really good question. So the earliest forms of newsfeed, both on Facebook, I have to remember, Facebook introduced the newsfeed pretty early on. I want to say something like two thousand and nine. Um, but you know, this was the idea. It was just the idea of this proto idea of a social network. It wasn't even sophisticated. It was just, you have a social network. These are people who you say are in your network. And of course, behind the scenes, the company was famously building what's known as the social graph, which is literally mapping the networks between everyone in the world that's on their service, which today is more than a third of the world's population. So this, so this was this idea that we're just gonna create a scrolling feed, which wasn't a new idea in Silicon Valley like a, just a scrolling feed of updates and same with Twitter. But what happened around, I think I want to say around 2012, 2013 is that the scrolling feeds became more algorithmically sophisticated. So, and what that means is that there was an element where they were building into the technology predictions about who, what type of content they would expect for you to like, what type of content they would expect for you not to like, they were introducing you to new people that you may not have followed or shown interested in based on the kinds of people that you did follow or that you did interact with. So friends and friends of friends, the social graph got even bigger. It wasn't just friends. It was friends and friends of friends. It's one of the things that Facebook got in trouble with, with, with the Cambridge Analytica scandal is that Facebook used to, it wasn't just um, the political consultancy, Cambridge Analytica, that was affiliated with the Trump administration that was buying data from Facebook. At the time, in around 2013, 2014, once they realized they had this whole algorithmic web of what they could show you, well, behind the scenes then, they can create this really elaborate social graph of, of course, we know your, your interests, your likes, mm -hmm. but also um, not just your friends, but your friends of friends. And those friends of friends may not have been people who ever downloaded your app or were interested in what you were doing, but the company linked you. And so when the company would sell information about you to third-party developers, they were oftentimes, let's say I was a user of your app and that app wanted to get access to my social networks so that the app could grow. They didn't just want me, you didn't just want me as your customer. You wanted all of my friends as your customers as well. Well, Facebook would sell all of my friends who never downloaded the app to the app. And then they were also selling the friends of friends. So that's all been restricted. 
since Facebook scandals, but it used to be that app developers could get enormous amounts of information about the social graph. It was an API, the social graph API. It still is, but it's more limited. So it was something you could literally technically ping Facebook and be able to pull. Um, anyway, we can go down a whole so who who, who stopped them from doing that? Who stopped them from doing that? And I'm surprised that they did it. I'm surprised they stopped. What stopped them was the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Okay. But if you really want to hear the history, the history mm -hmm. goes back to very early Facebook, around 2008. Okay. When Zuckerberg said, he pronounced famously, I want everyone to build their apps on the back of Facebook. He had this, this young app that was growing virally in this curve no one had ever seen before. And you know this is four years before the company went public, but you saw the viral curve of the user growth. And at the time, you start seeing all these developers. And remember, the first developers were video game companies, because this is all before the App Store. This is before smartphones. So you had developers of games, particularly video, you know, games, gaming apps, on desktop. And those apps really wanted access to the Facebook user base because people played a lot of games on Facebook. And so Zuckerberg gives this speech where he basically says, it was at their annual conference, he says, I want to give access to, you know, everybody should build their business, build their service on the backs of Facebook. This is, you know, and that unleashed this whole, and then, you know, two years later, a year later, you have the app stores right. being introduced and suddenly you have the world of smartphones and there's dating apps and there's political apps and there's mapping apps and there's flashlight apps. There's the world of apps. Mm -hmm. And so every developer then, developers started to go to Facebook and get as much data as they could and grow their apps. I mean, you may, if you've ever done online dating, you remember back in the day, a lot of those dating apps were accessing, dating apps knew who was in your network because they were riding on the Facebook social graph. Uh, so everybody and their brother was growing off the Facebook social graph. It was something that they licensed for free. But they did it for free so that the apps would become dependent on Facebook. And what happened is that the Cambridge Analytica scandal mm -hmm. just put an end to all that. And it also was at a moment, not only where they had one and yet another public scandal, but also um, a moment when the company was getting so powerful vis-a-vis -vis app developers that they didn't need to be as generous to developers. Right. Right. Because they had them, right? They had them, so it think was about company it. Town. It's the company town. Well, think about it. This is at the time they're making this, this very permissive open world. They're thinking we can benefit from all these apps growing because then all these apps will grow on our user base, will sometimes grow with our platform, will become intertwined with all these apps, and they'll need us. Well, then what happened? And then we'll grow. That's how we'll supercharge our growth. So it's this virtuous cycle in their heads. Mm -hmm. Um, they also, by the way, you know, it was just virtue, wasn't just virtuous, it was also vicious because they were also taking stealing those ideas from the apps. In certain cases, um, they were, according to one lawsuit, they were playing chess with the data. So for apps that they that really needed their data, they would in in one lawsuit alleges they would require those apps to buy ads in order to get the data. So there was a lot of leveraging of the data, but this idea that we're going to create this ecosystem that's dependent on us and we're going to get more, more powerful. But what's happened is now they've gotten so powerful that they don't even need the ecosystem. And in fact, they are more likely to build something of their own now rather than let the app. So a great example is Facebook dating. They All the stock prices of all the dating apps crashed when Facebook announced they were going to do Facebook dating. 
they no longer need to help all these fledgling dating companies, dating apps, because they build their own. And you can ditto that, you know, they're now building a clubhouse competitor, an audio podcast they're going to be doing. So, so yeah. Yeah. So because all of these are built onto the, you know, the, the super structure of Facebook, Facebook has all their information, right? They know how they operate. They know who, what people are using them and they can just go right after them, right? They can, they can reverse engineer or shit, just engineer the same app. And they already have the, the pretty much most of the, the data on the users so they can market to them. Um, is that pretty much what they do, Elizabeth? I mean, is that how they would go about it? Um, obviously, in some cases, they purchase, outright purchase, right? Um, and are those purchases, are those fair? Are those usually fair purchases? Or are they purchases with a gun to the head? Uh, if you don't sell, you know, you're off of Facebook. Uh, there have been purchases with, with a gun to a head. Um, I think um, I wrote a story even back in the early days about the creator of this app called I Like, which was back in 2009, was the prototype of the like button. And really? yeah, it was, it was an app called I Like. It was a music app where you could say, I think, if you liked going to concerts or not. It's been a couple of years since I wrote about it. But um, basically, there was something where Facebook came to them and essentially set a version of this came out in lawsuits this this all came out in a lawsuit set a version of if you don't um if you if we don't if you don't let us buy you at a certain price we're just going to shut you down there was a version of that that happened and at the same time oh and by the way we also trademarked our own like button and fuck you and, and screw you so so they had they from early on they were doing that kind of thing. I, I'll be honest with you, myself and a lot of other reporters have tried to find a lot of examples of that. Mm -hmm. We haven't found as many as we would want. And I attribute that to the code of silence. Facebook is still really powerful and you still might, if you're in the social app business, you might want to be acquired by them one day. So you don't, you don't want to piss them off. And so there's a much greater code of silence than I would expect. It's not like people are running and attacking them. And the other thing you have to remember is that a lot of people in Silicon Valley just see this as doing business, how, how business is done in Silicon Valley. You know, we're bigger than you. We're going to bigfoot you. We're going to shut you down. This One of these really interesting things about this whole antitrust conversation that's happened in the last few years, is Facebook mm -hmm. too large? Did it buy up all of its competitors in order to squash innovation? A lot of people, what I've always found interesting about this whole thing is that Regulators are looking at what I would, what people in Silicon Valley see as completely common business practices. And now they're looking at those with a fresh eye and saying, were those business practices anti-competitive? And if I've talked to so many people in Silicon Valley, what do you think of these antitrust cases against Facebook or Apple? And most people who are entrepreneurs here will tell you that that just looks like doing business. And it's, it's you know, it's a doggy dog world. It's a, it's a shark tank. It's, you know, and, and that's super interesting to me that people here are definitely not outraged, even though people here also think in the very same breath, and I've written this too, that many startups, fewer startups are getting built now. There's almost, you know, very few new social startups are getting built since Facebook cemented a certain type of dominance. You, you, would there be a new Instagram today? That's a really interesting question. Like, think about how popular Instagram is. What? Facebook would... So Instagram, the kind of 
revolution and photo sharing and in the image and the use of the image, a social use of the image. People would tell you, I think today that some people would say, well, could Instagram have gotten off the ground today with the dominance of Facebook? It wasn't nearly, the Facebook was, had barely become, it was just not even a public company yet when they started becoming interested in Instagram. And some people like Facebook will tell you yes. And they point to TikTok. They say, look, TikTok has grown to be a massive global company with so many users, despite our dominance. So they'll always point to TikTok as an example of why you can't say that they've stuffed down innovation. Another way to look at it is to look at all the ideas. Like I remember talking to investors, even as recently as 2018, you could say, look at all the ideas that did not get built. Mm -hmm. Yes, there was one TikTok. Mm -hmm. um, and it came out of China, interestingly. China's one of the places where Facebook is not allowed to go. So it had the moat. It had that protective moat to grow as a viral idea in a country that Facebook isn't allowed to be in. And then once it got so popular and big, it comes to the US in a different form. And even though, by the way, you know, the company was originally a US company, but it was sold to a Chinese company and then it grows in China. Fundamentally, though, I remember talking to people in 2018 about all the ideas that investors would turn down, all the stuff that didn't get built, because people would just say, oh, Facebook is going to copy that mm -hmm. or buy that or destroy that. And I think there was a lot of that, too. And that's a lesser told history here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you're a kid, a little kid on the beach and you keep building sandcastles, but you know there's this big bully who's going to come over like every 20 minutes, right? And kick over your sandcastle and you're just like fuck it yeah, <laughs> i'll dig a like, hole <laughs> exactly you just huff off to the other side of the playground or the other yeah. side of the beach and you're like i'm not going to build my sandcastle well that's exactly what happened there's a lot of sandcastles that were not built yeah that makes perfect sense to me now can you i saw i saw a, a talk that you gave and you talked about the original uh, creator of, of instagram and how it was originally created and what her ideas for it were because it really it originally was for artists right for artists and for the artistic type, right? And it's morphed into something else. And was that driven by Facebook the way that it morphed? And because I am, as I mentioned earlier, I am on Instagram and even I notice it changing. I see a lot more ads than I used to see in the beginning. It used to be very, very image driven, but now I uh, honestly, like every third or fourth uh, image is, a, is an ad. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that, about the origin of Instagram and how Facebook took that over and whether it changed it at all? Yeah, that, that was actually one of my favorite stories I did. I, I interviewed this woman. So this is back in, I think I did this story back in 2018. Um, this was a woman who was within one of the top, one of the first 10 employees at Instagram. When Instagram was acquired, it only had, I, don't get me wrong, the number of employees. I want to say under 50. Maybe, wait, maybe it was even 12. Okay, this is why I'm glad we're taping because I can't remember. <laughs> Let me just say 12, but we'll have to check it. Okay. When Instagram was first acquired, it had very few employees, like maybe under 20. Mm -hmm. And one of the women that I spoke with, Bailey Richardson, years later, so she was one of the original mm -hmm. creators. She was in the top 10 of the first employees. Um, and remember, Instagram was a pretty young company when Facebook acquired it. People said, wow, you're buying this young company for a billion dollars. But what Facebook knew was that the growth curve of Instagram looked very similar to that hockey stick growth curve of Facebook in the early days. So Zuckerberg, who is incredible at seeing competition and incredible at seeing where the future is going in social, um, saw that as the future. And he pounced on it, even when it was very small and, and niche. 
that's one of Zuckerberg's gifts is that even when something is small and niche, he can see the potential um, and then even see it as a potential threat before night, before the rest of us even care about it or think it's interesting, he'll see it as a threat. It says a lot about his personality. Hmm. And he saw, they saw, so what happened was, is that Bailey, Bailey Richardson, who was this early employee at Instagram was really involved in creating a service that at the time was for artists. It was for people who really loved photography. And so she got a lot of photographers around the world to be on the service. And she would always talk about how there was this beautiful community feeling about it. Like, I can't remember. I remember like she told me one story, she came to Russia. She would do these Instagram meetups all around the world with like early creators. Remember, these are people who were like early days. Like there weren't that many creators on the app, on the app. So they could just meet each other. And she would go to different countries and she went to Russia and people had like knit different, had made different like knit designs in honor of Instagram. Like it was basically this very genuine flourishing of visual community and sharing images. And she used to curate the Instagram blog. So every single day, Instagram would highlight the work of their best creators. And so she would, and she would go around the world. She got to know some of them, some of them she's still friends with today as artists. And so then I heard through the grapevine, then 2018, this woman who was one of the creators of Instagram, early employees that she had quit and said, the time has come for me to move on. And um, after a lot of convincing and a lot of conversations with her, she agreed to let me tell her story. Definitely wasn't, she was not looking for press. She had just sent this post to a bunch of friends saying, this is my last day at Instagram. This was Bailey. What? Was this Bailey? This is Bailey. Yeah, Bailey had sent out, Bailey Richardson, she had just sent out a message to just her friends and family, her small group saying, hey, this is my last day at Instagram. I know this will come as a shock to you guys because of my role in creating it. But it's just time's come for me to move on. Time has come from, it's just not serving kind of how you said about Facebook. It's just not serving me anymore. So she did that and I heard about it. I got in touch with her, had to convince her a lot to talk to me. But what was just really interesting about what she said is that she just said that um, that the app um, you know, no longer was as much about creators. It was so celebrity driven mm-hmm. and like all the people who'd become creators and some of them were famous. Some, you know, they were so stressed out by their lives and by the pressure to constantly post, you know, that it became this kind of job to gain, you know, gain the algorithm and get audience and get likes, like all the things that play to our insecurities and, um, you know, just creating this fantasy world that we'll never live in. And, you know, she didn't think the values were right. And then I ended up contacting a whole bunch of the early employees of that first 10 and finding that a large number of them tell me that they didn't use Instagram. Or, no, they, they didn't speak on the record, but um, they, they were spooked on background for the story and saying that a good number of them said they don't use Instagram anymore or they had deleted the app or even that they had deleted the app. And they told the story of how when Facebook bought the company, you know, originally Facebook had basically promised the founders of Instagram independence and creating their own service. But from the get-go, they were going to supercharge Instagram's growth with Facebook techniques. And so one really interesting example is photo tagging. You may remember that Facebook used to automatically suggest who was in your photos. Do you remember that? I don't. Okay, so you'd put in a, you'd upload a photo. Mm -hmm. Let's say it was of your four friends. Mm -hmm. And then it would suddenly 
suggest, oh, this friend is Melissa, this friend is Jackie, this friend is right. Yes. Remember that? Uh-huh. So, and then on the back end, it would send people an email saying, hey, Melissa, did you know you got tagged in Elizabeth's photo, Liz's photo? And that, the reason Facebook, the person who invented the photo tagging, he was considered a genius because it was like, it was one of these kind of growth hacks to use a term that the company, it was a term that the company used to use with pride was the growth hack. Now they don't use that term anymore. But it was this idea of these psych, what I would call is these like psychological manipulation techniques where they discovered, oh, that's an amazing way to get people back on our service. People who haven't used Facebook for a little while, just get tell them they've been tagged on a photo. Well, everyone wants to know what photos of them are online. Right. That was a way to, people, to bring people back in the fold. And so when they bought Instagram, they immediately tried to introduce techniques like that, like photo tagging. And the Instagram people were like, no, this isn't our culture. It's not our jam. It's not our jam. It's not, you know, this is not. We're Russian knitters. We're Russian knitters, you know, (laughs) over in Moscow with our really cool knits and everything's very precious, you know, for us. And we don't want this. Like Facebook was, Facebook was like Walmart and Instagram was like, you know, some really precious boutique in Northern California. And so eventually now they've all become one. And what's actually happened is with Instagram, this is something I've read. I haven't reported on it originally, but with Instagram, getting more and more popular. First of all, it created a huge rift between the founders and Mark Zuckerberg. The founders ended up leaving because of the compromise of independence. And particularly what I've read is that Facebook, who's which the core Facebook app, well, that growth has been, the, the growth has been stalling for years. Mm-hmm. The growth in that app has been stalling for years. And so they, but Instagram's growth is still going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And so in more recently, it's, it's becoming the other way where instead of Facebook using its growth hacking techniques to supercharge Instagram, Instagram and getting so powerful and trendy that Facebook is wanting to take features from Instagram, is wanting to take infrastructure from Instagram. And that is reportedly one of the things that caused the founders to leave was like the cannibalization of Instagram. So, yeah. So, so are Instagram and Facebook um, under the entire Facebook tent? Are they run by separate divisions, um, or do they do cross cross marketing, cross, you know, um, AI? In other words, are they separate entities underneath Facebook? Uh, I think the thing to know that people may not understand, but what Facebook has done is Facebook has Facebook owns um, a family of apps. They own Instagram, they own WhatsApp, they own Messenger, which is, you know, their Messenger, which they created. But in many countries, many people don't actually have Facebook. They only have Messenger. Um, And they own Oculus, the VR company. Mm -hmm. So what Facebook has done is set set aside Oculus because it's a bit of a different technology. But for the rest of the services, what Facebook has done is they have created a unified underlying infrastructure. So before, like when Instagram was first bought by Facebook, they had their own data centers. They had their own social graph. It was a tiny company. Well, you know, tens of millions of 50 million users or whatever, don't quote me on the number, but it was, you know, small enough. And they imported, they basically just made a carbon copy of Facebook's data, of Instagram's data, and just put it on Facebook servers. So, but what happened over time was that the underlying technology has become one. So 
one of the biggest examples would be an ad delivery. So the way Facebook makes money, as we know, is selling targeted ads based on your interest and your demographics and the things you click on and what they think would be relevant to you. So that backend ad system is the same for Facebook and Instagram. It's one backend system, not just the ads, also the content moderation, the review, the procedures, the policies, and then the real technical infrastructure underlying it. It's, It's rebuilt. It's one big social graph. And that's why when you get into these conversations about would the government ever break up Facebook, would the government ever break up Facebook and make Instagram a separate company? You know, people have given who work there, sources have given me different answers about what, how technically complex that would be. And almost everyone I've talked to said it would take years right. because literally they have so brilliantly intertwined these companies that a breakup, it wouldn't be impossible, but it would be a gargantuan technical sure. effort. And they made it that way. And, and you'd have to take their word for it, right? Because <laughs> I could see them going, oh, no, no, we're good. We're separate now. Don't worry about it. Uh, because who knows? Who, who else can translate that type of information? Well, it would have to be audited. And there are, and there are engineers that could tell. I'm not saying I wouldn't, you know, um, if it ever came to that. And I don't know if it would come to that. You know, I have no idea. I mean, this is going to be a, this big antitrust case with the government is going to be a decade long case. But I did once quote this, uh, you know, how Microsoft was in a de- decade long case with the U.S. government antitrust case, which they lost. And um, they, you know, I remember the product manager of Microsoft told me a couple of years ago, I put this in a story. He said, Facebook is doing the exact same thing that we did. And that's that's the guy who was in charge of the program that led to the antitrust lawsuit. Who, who said that? He's today he's a venture capitalist, but at okay. the time he was a manager at Microsoft working oh, on he Windows. Knows. Yeah, he knows. <laughs> this is two years before the antitrust case, but I was interested in this theme of Facebook's dominance. So I do want to talk about the antitrust case, but I want to, you brought up the growth hack um, because that to me is what lies at the heart of all the things that I find so, um, lack of a better term, bad um, about about Facebook is what they did. And I think that came, did that start like in 2010 to 2017 where they started to do the growth hacking um, so that they could really fine tune their ability to read and predict um, all of you know the human behavior, the human interactions and human behaviors on their uh, on their apps. Well, gr- growth hacking was something that used to be championed at Facebook, even back as far as 2009. Um, but it really referred, in my understanding, to techniques that were being done behind the scenes to get people to use the service more. Mm -hmm. And they took a lot of their ideas from, by the way, from the video game industry, um, which had been doing very similar growth techniques. The term actually, I believe, comes from the video game industry. And remember Facebook, as I mentioned earlier, was very close with developers, video game developers. So in fact, they hired a lot of those developers. Makes sense. And, And so they saw the growth hacks of video game industry, they thought they could build their own. And, you know, one of the growth hacks that I mentioned was photo tagging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were lots of different tricks. Some of these kind of psychological luring techniques. Um, another thing they would be doing would be how they would import the contact list. That's another, like, that they would, um, when you downloaded it on your uh-huh. smartphone, you know, mm-hmm. that they would, they would take your whole contact list. And then that was 
a way that they could find people to potentially invite to Facebook or people who are already on Facebook, but they could strengthen the connections. They could see who had the relationship with who. And, and at the time in Silicon Valley, a lot of this stuff was just considered totally okay. I mean, I remember there were all these back in even up till 2014, 20, there were all these even like contactless startups that tried to like, I remember once talking to a startup that their whole idea was that you would help, they would help different companies import contact lists and figure out the relationship between the people on your contact list. So like if I wrote mom, they'd be like, oh, that's Liz's mom. But then it would be like, oh, you know, Gary, I don't know, just pick a name, so-and-so. How is she related to Gary? And they would figure it out by like the calls, the number. If they, I don't know if they knew the number of times I could call, but it was like this crazy amount of inference, algorithmic inference that oh they were God. using. Yeah. Is that still happening with the contact list? I don't know. I think it's probably tightened down a lot for different reasons. I think people have a different view of privacy then than when I, now than when I started in Silicon Valley, what's about what's, what's permissible, what would be found upon in public and what wouldn't. It was a much more kind of wild west place. Even when I started working on this and reporting on this stuff in terms of what people thought they could build and people weren't thinking as much about the implications or the ramifications. And as I mentioned too, Facebook has also gotten so dominant that these kind of social startup ideas are less than a few and far between. So, so when you, um, you, you were on a show with a guy named Tristan Harris, who I thought was, was really good. And he brought up a, a term, which I think is brilliant, which is, you probably know what I'm going to say, which is race to the bottom of the brainstem. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from that whole growth hacking, right? Um, it, it reminds me of an, of an experiment that, um, I think his name was, uh, Christian Lucher did are you familiar with that with that no tell me yeah he he did an experiment he presented it um in 2016 and in, in copenhagen and what he found was that rats when hit with a shot of dopamine right when given a uh, an impulse of dopamine based on pressing a button they would press that button until they died of um, sleep deprivation or or they starved to death but as he put it in his study but they would they would die very happy mice, mm -hmm. and um, it reminded me it, that that study the outcome of that study reminded me of what of what your friend Tristan said, which was this race to the bottom of the brainstem, right? And what does this do? And that's what I find so horrible about what they have created. Um, so you're you're a writer, you know, and you're a great writer, as I mentioned. You've worked for all these blue chip chip places. I used to pride myself, Elizabeth, by every day getting four newspapers, right? I would get four newspapers. I would get the Wall Street Journal. I'd get the local. I'd get like the Chronicle, right? I'd get the B. Um, and I'd read them every day, right? And the beauty of reading a newspaper is the same reason that I look at paper maps when I travel across the country. Um, because when I use GPS, I only see the road, right? I just see the route that's going to take me from A to B, but I have zero context, right? I don't know what's on the other side you know, when you're using GPS. I don't know what's over those mountains. I don't know, there could be an Indian reservation over there. I might wanna go stop by, I have no idea. And it's the same experience that I find when you read an actual print media, right? I could be reading a story and then I could say, oh, there's an uprising in Myanmar. I should read about that, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, there has been a huge fire in the Amazon forest, right? I should read, I should, I should, <laughs> I should read about that. But 
what they have created with this growth hacking is that I only see the things that I have an immediate or are are exhibited interest in. And it keeps, I think, people, I think it's created a society in which we're losing context, right? Um, the same as when we only use GPS and never look at a paper map, we lose context of where we are. The same as when we get our um, news off of a news feed, we're only fed the news that we care to see. So what do you think about that? I mean, are we all just going to die, you know, fat, happy, white, you know, or actually not fat rats, very, very hungry, skinny rats, but, you know, with a smile on our little rat faces? Hmm. Well, <laughs> smile on your little rat faces. <laughs> I like the way you put it. Um, uh, yeah, I think... Um, these companies have gotten very good at knowing what we're interested in, um, especially at what's at the bottom of the brainstem. I mean, it, it really bothers me. It really bothers me because I feel like I don't know what I would be reading otherwise if things weren't served for me. Actually, my, my I have a challenge right now with Apple News because I have an iPhone and Apple News is always, you know, at the very front of my iPhone. It's the front screen before I go into the phone. And so, you know, last year, I started reading about Meghan Markle and the Royals, which I'd never paid attention to, but I read a little bit about it. And now you're I've bombarded read so much about it because it's the top two on my feed on my front of my phone that I check a million times a day is always something about Meghan Markle and the Royals. And I'm like, it's, it's like, it's just giving me more of what it thinks I like, but at some point, and this is Tristan, you know, Tristan's thing is, but at some point, you're saying, yeah, what, what my bottom of my brainstem thinks I like isn't necessarily good for me. And if you ask me to design the system, would I design a system where I was given, you know, 10 stories? If you ask me, do you want today to, do you want to spend today reading five stories about Meghan Markle? Well, I would say, no, I really don't. I really don't want that if you ask me. And so you're not always giving things people really want even if they express intent, you know, the advertising term, the industry term is intent. If you click, that's intent. Google search is a show of intent. So what I, my intent digitally in my digital footprint is not the same as what I really want or what I need or what's good for me or what I would like. And I think that's, that's the divide. Hmm. Well, and you're an adult, right? So if you're an 11 year old, and all Facebook or whatever, you know, uh, Twitter or Apple Newsfeed keeps showing you is what you have shown intent on. So if when I was 11, right, I would have developed very, very differently if I was only shown the stuff that I care that I showed it that I exhibit intent on, right? I never would have discovered the greater world because they would just be showing me, you know, I don't know, whatever I did it as an 11 year old baseball, whatever. Um, is that, I mean, is that a good way for kids to be exposed to this? I, I know there's nothing we can really do about it, right? I understand that that horse has left the barn a long time ago, but what is the impact though, do you think to, to kids? And I know you're a mother, right? I think you mm -hmm. mentioned that earlier. I mean, what what is the impact? Yeah, no, it's something that I really worry about because I already think now, what what things that I not read or think about that I would have actually really enjoyed and gotten deeper satisfaction, deeper mm -hmm. layers of satisfaction out of if I had not been clicking on Meghan Markle and, oh, they're now 1030 at night and I got to go to bed, you know? Yeah. And so, you're reading about Megan. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, yeah. 
So no, I'm definitely feel like uh, my my child is too young. So I have to going to have to go deep into how we deal with social media. Uh, and I've talked to, by the way, a lot of different executives at social media companies. I remember even Sheryl Sandberg telling me, you know, they don't even let their kids on social media or touch it. There's really some stories about that. Yeah, there's some, some, some stories about how the very top people in Silicon Valley, I think the Google CEO too, they're very restrictive with their kids about the services they build because they know. Or don't they send them to those schools where like they don't have like any tech? I think I read an article about yeah. that. Um, yeah. An article I never would have, uh, you know, found if I was depending on Facebook newsfeed. Um, but I think I was reading something and I saw that article and it was saying a lot of these tech um, executives, they send their kids to these schools, which are which are actually very, very um, uh, absent of tech. Like they have nothing to do. Everything is hands on and um, very rudimentary. So, well, that's something. Okay. Wait, can, so I, can I say one thing about it though? Oh, yeah. Is um, So there's this other idea. It's not a Tristan idea, um, but it's another idea um, by a philosopher whose name I'm blanking on. Um, but he talks about this idea of an intention, attention commons. And he talks about the idea of intention as a human right. At, I'm sorry, not intention, excuse me. He talks about the idea of attention, A-T-T, attention, your attention as a human right, as a right. The, the right to be able to be mentally present could be thought of as a right. It could also be thought of as a commons, like there's this bandwidth of attention that people have and it's precious, it's a right. And so when you take it away, you know, you rob people of their ability to be present and their attention in a way you're, you're taking something very precious from them. And I think we all know, we all know that. Um, yeah, we don't even need a philosopher to tell us. We all know that something really important has been taken away from us. There's also been all these psychological studies that show that, um, People who describe themselves as being happier or having happier interactions, you have more, you have more meaningful quality interactions when you're present. Like you and I right now, we're really present. Correct. And I'm enjoying the conversation. Correct. I'm very present with you. Your, your, your satisfaction goes way down when you're multitasking. Right. And you know, we live in a giant multitasking world. So we're actually getting less satisfaction out of all of our moments. Mm -hmm. I think you're exactly right. And it also deals with authenticity. Right. Um, if you spend your I, I found for the brief period of time that I was on Facebook, I found that my authenticity um, was actually absent because everything was based on that. Well, like my white rats. Right. That little dopamine hit that you got. Oh, are people going to like this? Um, how am I yeah. going to look in this picture? I wasn't being authentic. And I think if I look back on my experience on Facebook, I don't have any good memories of it. I don't have bad memories of it. But I don't have any good memories of it. I don't go around. Oh, remember that one time on Facebook? No, nothing. Anytime I say, remember that one time, it has to deal with a moment like this when I was interacting present with another human being, right? Or I won the lottery, right? Uh, I mean, that would be. <laughs> Good. I hope you do. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the, because uh, you've been covering this, and this is where I first, you know, came upon you, which was um, your coverage of the, uh, of the antitrust stuff and all the hearings back in DC. So I know that's all happening now. I think there, is there a, where there's some lawsuits happening right now. I, I, I'm always afraid of saying the wrong thing in front of you because you are the person on this issue. So um, what's happening on, on that front? Uh, there's several lawsuits. There's a large lawsuit that is being brought, has been brought jointly by the US Department of Justice and several states led by New York. Let me just double check that because mm -hmm. um, I don't want to be 
it's I just again attention it's amazing how you can forget things when you do so much Hmm. let me just say Facebook we'll edit antitrust lawsuit with New York State I just want to make sure I'm describing it accurately Yeah, so it's it's a lawsuit um, led by a coalition of 48 attorneys generals. That's basically every state, Jeez. bipartisan, led <laughs> by New York Atten- Attorney General Tish James. Ah, so any insights on that? What, what your feelings are? How you think that might come out? I mean, what's the response? I, I well, never mind. I know what the response is. Um, uh, they have the they have the same response, I think, to everything. Um, and there's also there's also I should say an, an Department of Justice lawsuit um, as well. And Biden has carried that up, is continuing that. Yes, he is going to continue that. So it's an it's a it's a Department of Justice lawsuit um, that is that's go that is also suing. Um, sorry, <laughs> let me just get it right. So right, I just cannot be in trouble. I can't get in trouble for this. Yes. So can I can I restate that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you start from the beginning yeah. and go ahead? Sure. So, so this is the Federal Trade Commission. I have to. Elizabeth, it's funny. I've written so many articles about this. You'd think that I would know, but it's easy around to answer. Trust case. I literally am searching my own articles. Yeah. Sorry. That's I just right. right. Actually, I'll ask, I'll ask the question again so we can edit it in cleaner. Just a moment, let me just double check. Yes, okay, so go for it. Go ahead and ask the question and I'll just, it is, I was correct, but I'll restate it. Okay, yeah, so I mean, I think now we move to the to the legal forum and I think that there are quite a few or at least a number of lawsuits that are going on right now. It, what do you know about that and, and what are they? What are, what are they based on? So right now, Facebook is the subject of sweeping antitrust lawsuits that were filed in December from 48 state attorneys general, led by Attorney General Tish James of New York and the Federal Trade Commission. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, it's going to be it's going to be one of the biggest antitrust suits of our generation and of our time. Um. It is going to take a long time, just like the mega one in the 90s against Microsoft. It took many, many years to wind through the legal system, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why, if you pay attention to it, like me, you see a lot of congress- congressional hearings on this yeah. topic. And I think it's like the government, the politicians are just trying really hard to continue to drum up interest because uh, in the topic, because a very long, winding, abstruse lawsuit people are gonna lose attention. They're gonna lose their attention. Um, so, but yeah, I think there's some really, really interesting issues at the heart of these lawsuits in this case. You know, essentially the case is just alleging that Facebook is a monopoly and that it abused its market power through years of anti-competitive conduct and illegal acquisitions, and that that's how it became the world's largest social network. And at the same time, has stripped people of alternatives. You know, this idea of 
right. company became so large and they can do what they effectively what they want with your privacy. They set the market rates, right? They set the market rates, not just for your data, but for mm -hmm. your privacy, for everything that, you know, for everything that they have on a user. Um, and then the suits specifically call for the breakup of WhatsApp and of Instagram. Um, okay from Facebook as well. Okay. So you, I mean, you follow this. Should Facebook, should Facebook be worried? Um, they are very worried. Okay. <laughs> they are very worried. Um, they've, they've launched a company-wide, we reported this, they've launched, launched like a company-wide anti-competitive training where like every employee has to now go through this training where they learn not to say anything negative about other companies. They're not, they're, they're not even allowed to say things like- Competitive? Don't use that word. Yeah, don't use the word. Don't use the word competitive. Don't say, don't make any disparaging remarks about any potential competitors. Don't don't talk about. Don't say anything about our power. You know they're totally afraid that. Wow. Yeah. They have like, anti-competitive training for employees. Yeah, they started that. After, oh my god, after that's so wild. It was announced. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. They, they're really afraid that you know comment these any any authentic comment might show up in the lawsuit and become oh, sure. public knowledge. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Well, that's, that's encouraging. I, I am actually glad to hear that. I mean, and again, my biggest problem with them, as I have said over and over is what they have done to, you know, to society just through this whole, you know, the, the growth hack, the algorithm. And I don't, I just inherently do not think it's good for our society. I don't think it's good for your kids. I don't think it's good for me. I don't read like I used to read, right? I mean, it, it, things are just different. And, you know, I think we all have a little bit of blame, but again, like those dead rats, right? You can't help. You just keep pushing that damn button. So um, what have you seen? What's been the most shocking thing that you've seen from Facebook, you know, as we move towards the end here? What, what's the most shocking thing that, that you're just like, did they just really do that? Did they just really say that? Since you've been covering this, is there anything that stands out in the behavior of either Zuckerberg or Facebook that you're just, wow, okay, that's a new one? Oh my God. Well, can I give you a list? Yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah. Like, where do I start? Oh my I God. Think, I think when Zuckerberg back in 2016, um, when he dismissed the idea of Facebook having an effect on the election, on the election, that fake news on Facebook, people asked him, you know, this was before we knew about Russia and the role of Russian Russian intervention. Um, you know the, the Russians hacking of, of Facebook and abusing abusing the service with disinformation. Sure. Before we knew about Russian disinformation, you know Zuckerberg was famously asked, "Do you think that some of the fake news on Facebook, some of the salacious news on Facebook, was was could have affected the course of the election?" And he completely flippantly and dismissively said no, and he totally was dismissive about it. Like, ah, like, of course not. When, you know, in the same breath, the company's political division was going out bragging to politicians just what? how much Facebook could be used to tip elections. That was the whole strategy. I know. I, I, yes, I have firsthand no, knowledge of that. Yeah. Ooh, I want to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they'll have to be off the mic. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I have firsthand knowledge of that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're going out bragging, you know, mm -hmm. that they do tip elections. And in fact, they, they, I'm not so saying even bragging, they're a very numerical company. They produced reports. They got metrics. Where they, metrics where they said, yeah. here's the number of people that voted. Here was the campaign that this, that this team, that this political campaign did on Facebook. And here's how they tipped people's 
here's how they tip people's opinions. And we can try to say that there was this measurable outcome in voting as a result. They're still saying today that they ran the largest voting registration drive in history is what they're saying about the 2020 election. And so they, they're very, when it suits them, right. they will go out and say, yes, we can influence people's political behavior. When it does not suit them, they will dismiss it and say, like, we couldn't possibly have influenced people's behavior. So, you know, if you knew that, you were just like, oh, my God. (laughs) You're like, oh, it's such a it's such a lie or it's such a like if it's not if it's not an outright lie, it's like such such willful blindness, such not putting the pieces together, such such a lack of understanding of how others would see your behavior. and then I think, you know, the Boz memo, that is seared into my brain. <laughs> I don't know if you know about that. No, but... what's the Boz memo? Well, the Boz memo, Andrew Bosworth is an executive at Facebook, a longtime executive at Facebook. He's been with Zuckerberg since the beginning. They're old, old friends. I call him Zuckerberg's id. <laughs> and he once wrote this memo, which was then leaked. And the memo was called, it was called the like, we connect people memo. But basically what this memo said was he basically, he turned growth into this religion and it was written. Boz did. Boz did. Wait, I have to, I got to pull it out for you because it was like. Yeah, we got to edit. Don't worry. Okay, cool. So basically, you know, Boz, it basically, you know, I call him Zuckerberg's in because He essentially lists out all the bad things that can happen because of Facebook's service and then says, but all this is in the service of connection. All this is in the service of growth. That's their religion. It was almost like a religion. So he even said, he said, this is a quote. He said, maybe somebody dies in a terrorist attack coordinated on on our tools. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, he says, we connect people, period. That's why all the work that we do in growth, because he ran the growth division, that's why all the work that we do in growth is justified. He Then he said, all the questionable practices, he literally said in his memo, all the questionable practices. <laughs> and he mentions all the growth hacks. He says, but all of that is morally justified. He said justified, he meant morally justified. Because no matter what bad things happen, including if people die in a terrorist attack, that is all in the service of the greater good, which is connecting people. And I will never forget the Boz memo. Since then, I've always called him Zuckerberg id, Zuckerberg's id, because it, it really showed that growth at all cost mentality and how 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 they had really turned. Like, like to me, when I look at growth, I say, well, we logically ethically growth can be for the bad and for the good so you can't take growth and say it's universally good it can no. be bad growth or good growth cancer grows right yeah Fungus grows yeah bad things <laughs> bad grow. things so, can grow so how can you say that just because it's growth it's good there's just no like and so that that like moral fallacy i don't know what you would call it but there's some deep delusion going on there and yeah, and that's why when you understand, like when I look at this, you have to say it's an extraordinary story. Not every company or every person has the chops or the ability to create 
in, a, in the span of less than 16 years, one of the largest and most profitable companies in history. And there has to be inside it, there has to be something more than just building a product. It's a, it has to be a cult. It has to be a religion. It has to be an ideology. My God. You have to motivate people to do things that would in some ways go cut against basic morality. You have to get people to do superhuman things that they might not otherwise do. I, I, I think I had in the back of my head at the base of my brainstem, I, I had heard of the Boz memo, I think. And cause when you said it, I remembered it a little bit, but I had no idea of the full content. Um, that's crazy. Um, so like I'm picturing chef Boyardee, right. <laughs> Going, you know what, man, if people have to die so we can get SpaghettiOs to people, bro, that's just growth. That's what we have to do. It's justified. We're feeding people, right? I mean, you could use it for anything. That's such bullshit. Crazy. Yeah, if we have to get, if people have to die to get those targeted ads for Chef Boyardee, we've done our job. Exactly. We've done our job. You're like, oh my God. So you ask what has, I mean, I've never forgotten that in all the years covering the company because I have always, as many reporters who have covered Facebook have known that there was, when you talk to people, there is that cultish feeling. Mm-hmm. I have never seen it spelled out so much Yeah, I was, as in that moment. And I'm like, oh, wow. I mean, they basically rewrote the story so that anything they did that was wrong was good and morally justifiable and, and, and a mission. They, they turned that, they turned that growth into the mission. And not just a company mission, but a moral mission, an ideology, a religious mission. It's it's, and I and I don't think that got, that philosophy guides the company today. Okay, okay. So you think you think we're past this? Well, well, maybe. I think maybe they're past it only because they feel like the feds are probably breathing down their neck, right? I just think they're chastened. I don't think that. I think again. I go back to. I think it was Zuckerberg's id talking. I uh-huh. think. I think he is fundamentally about growth at all costs. It's just he's learned some really painful lessons along the way that sometimes the costs can be too great and you have to, but he's not going to stop. I mean, one of the best examples is what just happened with Facebook in Australia. Oh my God. Thank you for touching that. I do want to talk about that. Thank you. we, We can talk about that. And we can also talk about the Facebook's battle with Apple right now. They are on the offensive against their critics. One of their critics is Tim Cook of Apple. They're on the offensive against him against the company, against him personally. When Australia tried to rein rein them in and make them pay for news, they went on the offensive and they went and they created an entire news blackout of Facebook and Australia. So they're not going back to the Boz memo. They're not just sitting there, you know, they understand that there are costs and that they've hit some walls, but they're not, um, I, I don't see those walls as, they're not, it's so complicated to be honest with you, because in some ways I see it as a company that's very changed because they've gotten more cautious already. This to me is one of the big questions about Facebook. On the one hand, I see them acting way more aggressively in certain contexts. And that to me fits with the Facebook I know, just move fast and break things. If you need to black out the news in Australia, you're going to do it, win at all costs. The win at all costs mentality that made them successful, I see that still. But I also see in other ways, like the 
anti-competition training, I see a chastened company. And I see, so I see both. I, I also see a company fundamentally, whether they're chastened or not, I do see a company whose service has gotten out of their control. Um, you know, the, the most important example, we haven't talked about it yet, is the US election and the Stop the Steal campaign leading to the Capitol riots and the role that Facebook organizing on Facebook played in the riots at the Capitol on January 6th. And if you look at just how many, how the whole Stop the Steal movement was very much organized on Facebook, which means that they had a better position than anyone to see the kinds of content that was delegitimizing the election and the connection between that content and potential violence, militia groups, even the whole idea of delegitimization itself. You know, is there a line that you should be able to, that you should not be able to cross if, you know, maybe you and I can go on Facebook and say, I believe the election wasn't legitimate, but does it get to a point where it becomes such a large movement that it becomes dangerous to democracy? Now, I empathize with them in that some of these questions, there's a fine line around free speech. There absolutely is. And these are like really weighty questions for them to handle. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the fact of the matter is that this rally, this riot was organized on their platform despite them having policies saying you can't delegitimize the election results, despite that we're gonna fact check, despite that we're gonna label. Same with vaccine hesitancy in this country. Sure. The US has a very large, significant numbers of vaccine hesitancy. We are already getting to the point where we have more vaccines than people are willing to take them. And if you ask people why they're hesitant about vaccines in the US, you know, I've seen some surveys, people will always say side effects. If you go on, and I blame a lot of that on misinformation and social media, because if you go, even though in reality, there haven't been massive side effects, if you go into the world of social media, as I have, the side effects are way overblown. You'd think there were only side effects and you'd think there was sterilizing women and diseases like Bell's palsy. It would be totally, it is totally blown out of proportion. And so I'm sorry, that is a long-winded way of saying that this, the real problem is not whether they're chasing or not. The real problem is that their own system is out of their control. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. So their entire engagement strategy, right? I mean, it's in their, I think you said this before, it's just their DNA, right? I don't know if they can change their engagement strategy because I think it's 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 hooked into their DNA. And in order to change it, they I guess they just wouldn't be Facebook, right? Um, in order to stop the QAnon people from communicating with the QAnon people or the vaccine hesitancy people from engaging with the vaccine hesitancy people or, you know, some of the other things, how, how do you stop that? If you're facing I mean, some things have more of a finer line than others. You know, we're mm -hmm. writing about how vaccine hesitancy is often tied to um, kind of skepticism about the government. Um, so you're allowed to be skeptical of the government on social media. You're allowed to, as an individual, say, I feel anxious about vaccines, that there's no question that they have really thorny free speech issues and all these things. But then when you, when it comes beyond individuals and it starts becoming organized movements mm -hmm. to discredit certain phenomenon that is in the public good, um, that, that, that is where they've enabled the most damage. And so there's this question of free speech with individuals, but then it becomes this collective force 
that is undermining the public good. And you say, okay, you, you say, yes, it's, it's in their DNA. I mean, if what you mean is, is it in the very design of their product? Right. The DNA, the growth DNA, the design mm -hmm. to create groups, to Correct. allow anyone to invite anyone to a group, to want groups to grow as big as possible and to create the tools for growth of those groups, which was the issue in the case of the Stop the Steal situation, um, to let those groups grow on hashtags. I mean, some of that stuff is just so fundamental to social media that the you know, you could only say, and so many people have that, like the solution is just no social media. And that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. It's really, really not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's why it is really an intractable problem because I've seen, you know, I have covered this company since before the 2016 election, but after the 2016 election in particular, when news, when, when we and others broke major stories about Russian disinformation on the platforms, we saw this big reckoning, we're gonna get it right next time. And what we saw in 2020 was that the whole thing was rife with not foreign disinformation, but domestic disinformation. And that domestic disinformation, the level of it and the organizing led to a violent riot at the Capitol. Hmm. And so they didn't get it right. After four years of, of quote unquote reckoning, of saying they're gonna get it right, they're on the foreign disinformation question, they've gotten a lot better because they're brighter yeah. lines. Mm -hmm. But on the domestic question, they don't even know where to begin to reckon, let alone solve the problem. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's easy for the AI to pick up the foreign stuff, right? Or easier, I think. Yeah. But it's harder for the AI to pick up when it's coming from inside. Man, that's that's. I hadn't really given that much thought. I really appreciate you bringing that up. Is there going to be any fallout for them on what happened with the Stop the Steal? But, you know, but it wasn't AI there. It was policy. You know, they, oh. they they banned the first Stop the Steal group. And then for some godforsaken reason, if they'd banned the first Stop the Steal group because there was content in it that was violent, this is all, by the way, happening the day after the election. We're talking about November. If they banned the first Stop the Steal group, well, then why did you let 100 others proliferate? And why did you let the 100 others that were connected to the original people proliferate? That's a question. Question they need question. to answer. Yeah, that's a really good question. I still don't understand. I still don't understand why. I still don't understand why, if they already thought it was bad, why did they allow it? So that's a policy question that needs to be answered. They could have said, we're going to ban this whole hashtag. We, we think this hashtag is associated with violent and with potential harm. And if there was already a precedent, because they already banned one group that was associated with it, it doesn't make sense to me. Mm -mm. No. Well, I hope to get to the bottom of that question this year. Oh, good. I'll be looking forward to that. So, so all right. So, I'm gonna if I had you back in a year, like, what what do you think would be different if uh, you know we met again next year, same time, same place? What would we have seen happen? Do you think? Um, that's a good question. I'll um. By the way, I should tell you, I do actually have to go. Um, yeah. This was it. Or, this is a lot. This be it. Yeah. Cool. Um, let me think about that for a second. I'll ask it again. No, no, no. It's not the question. It's just I'm actually just thinking about it. So I wish I had something dramatic to tell you, to be honest. Like, I wish I could say that 
the company is going to completely change because of these lawsuits that are going on? Or I really think the answer is more of the same. I think Facebook is going to become bigger and richer. I think the antitrust case will continue. I think that they're going to become more emboldened by some of the political moves they've taken, for example, in Australia. Mm. Um, and I think Facebook's leadership is going to become more, 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 um, more emboldened. And do I think that any of the phenomenon that led to Stop the Steal or the Capital Riots, do I think that any of that would be different? No, because I don't see a reckoning happening. All I see is deflection. deflection. I think people are going to be relieved. I think within Facebook, there are going to be people that are relieved that at least they have another year where there isn't a presidential election or a midterm election. And so they have a little bit of breathing room. They have a, they have a couple of years of breathing room because even during the midterms, people pay a lot less attention. Yeah. So these things only become mega scandals when everyone's paying attention to the same thing. So if you ask me like a year from now, do I think it'll be any different? No, I think Facebook's going to be more emboldened, likely much richer. They're going to report earnings in a few days. I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, and more, po more politically emboldened and not, not um, having the ability to change some of the fundamental both policy and like product choices that led to the problems that we saw. Wow. Well, that's good. Well, not the answer I wanted, <laughs> but Sorry. maybe the answer I need. <laughs> um, you have been such an amazing guest. Um, I, I'm just privileged to have someone who's right there at, you know, at ground zero on this issue. And I will continue to, to follow you and, and read you know, everything you put out there. And I just want to thank you very much for all of your time. You've been awesome, Elizabeth. Um. Well, I'm so flattered and it's really interesting to have the conversation and get out of the day-to-day -day grind of reporting and actually think about these things on a higher level. So thank you. All right. All right. Bye-bye.